All right, well, let me ask you to open up your Bibles to the book of Acts. The book of Acts in chapter 11. Acts chapter 11. Uh, If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, I encourage you to uh, use one from the seats in front of you. Uh, You'll find our passage this morning uh, on page 920 in those Bibles. You may be wondering why we are going to Acts and not to Exodus. Uh, Lord willing, in a few weeks we will return to our verse-by-verse study of the book of Exodus. Uh, We've had a little break uh, over the Easter season, but we will be going back. And once we return to Exodus, we will be there in earnest. Uh, My plan is to preach uh, around 30 sermons on Exodus 19 and 20. Uh, between now and October, and that'll happen through, we'll do both Sunday mornings and Sunday evenings, uh, focusing on those passages. And the reason we'll preach so much on those two chapters is those two chapters, Exodus 19 and 20, are particularly helpful and important to our Christian lives. Uh, We've talked before about how the Bible is like a mountain range, And every part of it is wonderful, every part of it is glorious, but there are certain peaks that are higher than others. And in the Old Testament, Exodus 19 and 20 is one of those peaks, and so we will spend a good deal of time there. But I'm holding off just a little bit longer, and I'm holding off because there is a subject that I think is timely for us, a subject that I want us to spend just a few weeks addressing Uh, This is something that permeates our American air, and it is poisonous to us. Uh, It's everywhere. It's in the media. It's in the workplace. It's in the sports world. It's in the classroom. It's contrary to who we are to be as Christians, and it can do great harm to our Christian walk. I'm speaking here about the ambition to be number one. I'm speaking here about a false doctrine that declares that it is good and right for you to live for the sake of your own name. Self-promotion, selfish ambition. We have to be really careful here because Christians are to be a people who strive for excellence. We are to be a people who strive to give our best, our very best, and everything that God has given us to do. But as Christians, we are not to do our very best out of selfish ambition. Rather, our ambition is to be an ambition to serve. It's to be an ambition to be the best servant of Jesus Christ we can be. The brightest light, the saltiest salt, right? We want to be the best servant of His cause in this world that we can be. The heartbeat of the Christian, when he or she is thinking rightly, is not, unto me, Lord, be glory. It's to your name, Lord, to your name, 
be glory. And yet that's so contrary to what we hear every day. Uh, We are constantly being taught that the best people in the world are those with notoriety. That the truly successful life is the life that reaches fame. It's to be on top, to have the biggest business, the most money, and to be known for it. And this fits perfectly with our own fleshly desires because our flesh wants the praise and the admiration of men. Our flesh wants to be exalted in the eyes of others. We want others to think well of us. And instead of our lives being arrows pointing to Christ, we often want others with their eyes on us. And yet we just read that Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. In God's providence, there have been some true celebrities for Christ. Martin Luther was a celebrity for Christ. Uh, Historians tell us that he was so popular in his day that he would have been like a rock star in our day. All throughout Europe, everyone knew the name of Martin Luther. Uh, uh, Sketches of him engraven into wood were put in people's houses, almost like posters of our day. He was a celebrity. Charles Spurgeon, the prince of preachers, was known far and wide in his day. His sermons sold like this all over the world. Even some missionaries like William Carey and Lottie Moon are now well remembered. But for every person that God has chosen to make famous for His glory, there are thousands of others who served Christ with faithfulness and their names have been forgotten. Uh, somebody asked, uh, uh, I believe it was Paul Washer, uh, you know, who do you think is uh, the best preacher alive today? And his answer was, why do you think I know his name? I mean, we're, we're so keen to think that success and true faithfulness means notoriety. But for the vast majority of Christians, call, Christ has called us not to live for our own names, to live for his name. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Mount Hermon, very few people are entrusted with the heavy responsibility of being famous for Jesus. The Luthers and the Spurgeons of the world are the exception. They are not the rule. I hope this doesn't bust your bubble. For most of us in this room, we are called to be ordinary. Are you okay with that? You are called to be ordinary. And don't equate being ordinary with being unsuccessful. The call that Christ has placed on 99.9% of Christians is for us to be faithful servants of Jesus in our ordinary lives. So Leonard Bernstein conducted the New York Philharmonic Orchestra and he was once asked what is the most difficult instrument to play And he replied, 
the second fiddle. He said, I can get plenty of first violinists, but to find someone who can play the second fiddle with enthusiasm, that's a problem. And if we have no second fiddle, we have no harmony. So this sermon series, it'll be brief, only three services. Uh, This sermon series is about the second fiddlers. It's going to be about those who gave much for the cause of Christ, but did so quietly, not drawing attention to themselves, often willing to be in the shadow of other more popular men. In fact, in this case, I've chosen uh, four people altogether who all served in the shadow of Paul. And Paul is the man who's really well known. Paul is the celebrity, and yet Paul wouldn't be Paul without these people. And yet they were happy to serve in his shadow. They were helpers, they were assistants, they were encouragers, they were servants. Their joy was to be of help to the kingdom of Christ in any small way they could. Uh, This sermon series is a call for us not to be like Diotrephes. So if you're looking at your notes and wondering, when's he going to start using that? Well, that's now. Uh, We are called not to be like Diotrephes. And if you're wondering how to spell that, I think I put his name underneath there in the verse. 3 John 9, uh, John says, I have written something to the church, but Diotrephes who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So the spirit of Diotrephes says, me first. I want to be the one in charge. I want to be the one on the stage. I want to be the one getting the recognition and making the important decisions. But Christ has not called us to be like Diotrephes. He's called us to be like John the Baptist. John the Baptist was happy to fade into the background that Jesus would be heard and followed. And you remember what he said about Jesus. He must increase. I must decrease. Mount Hermon, we're just starting off this way with this question. Are you willing to be a second fiddler for Jesus? Are you willing to play the second fiddle with enthusiasm, fulfilling the callings that Christ has given to you, caring more about his name and his glory than your own name and your own reputation? And so, to help us with this, we're going to spend the next three Sundays looking at some second fiddlers today. We're going to look at Barnabas. Next Sunday, we're going to look at Epaphroditus. And then in two weeks, we'll look at Priscilla and Aquila. So let's take a few minutes and let's look at the example of Barnabas. And we're going to read in Acts chapter 11, beginning in verse 19. So look with me there. Acts chapter 11, beginning in verse 19. uh, This is the very word of God. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem. And they sent Barnabas to Antioch. 
When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. So let me give you first some fast facts about Barnabas, okay? Just some fast facts, some things that will be helpful for you to know about Barnabas. So first, Barnabas was from the Mediterranean island of Crete, okay? He's from the island of Crete. He was actually born in Cyprus, but at some point in his life, he had moved to Crete. He had made that island his home. And this means that even though Barnabas himself was a Jew, he grew up in pagan surroundings. Rome now reigned But the culture of the empire, the culture of the Roman Empire, was still very Greek. And certainly on the island of Crete, Barnabas was surrounded by Greek life. And therefore, you can see why Barnabas would have been helpful in the church's mission to take the gospel to Gentile peoples. He is a Jew who grew up around Gentile peoples. Second, Barnabas was a Levite, a Levite. He was from that priestly tribe of Israel, the tribe of Levi. Uh, Many Jews had been dispersed throughout the Greek world over the previous two centuries, and it seems likely that Barnabas' family helped preside over a local synagogue on the island of Crete that served some of these diaspora Jews. So he grew up in a family closely connected to a synagogue there on the island of Crete. Third, Barnabas' real name is Joseph. Joseph. Uh, Joseph was a very common Jewish name going all the way back to Joseph in the book of Genesis. It was the apostles that gave Barnabas his nickname, Barnabas. Uh, It means son of encouragement, or son of exhortation, or son of consolation. And when you look at what these, these names mean, the idea is that Barnabas had a gift for being able to encourage people. He had a a gift of exhortation, of being able to stir people up towards God and godliness. We also get this sense from reading the various passages about Barnabas that he was a kind man, a cheerful man, and a man who cared about the welfare of others. Well, fourth, Barnabas was a man sold out for the mission of Christ. He was sold out for the mission of Christ. As you walk through the Bible's accounts of Barnabas, this is the theme that comes up again and again. The spotlight is typically on Paul. It's Paul and Barnabas, right? Paul and, oh yeah, Barnabas. In Acts 14, the people of Lystra called Barnabas Zeus because he was the older man, but they called Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker, He was the one who had the people's attention. And yet even in Paul's shadow, we find in Barnabas a man ready to play whatever part was given to him 
that his Savior would be honored. And so in our passage this morning, I simply want to point out five marks of a Christian sold out to Christ. Five marks of a Christian sold out to Christ. And we're going to look at Barnabas and these marks, and we are going to pray that these same things would mark us. Are you ready? Here we go. Number one, Barnabas was willing to go where he could help. Barnabas was willing to go where he could help. So look again at verses 21 to 23. Verses 21 to 23. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. And the report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. And when he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. So what we see is that Barnabas was submissive to the leaders of the church in Jerusalem. And when they decided that Barnabas could be of some real help to the people in Antioch, they sent him and he went. He was willing to go where they believed he would be of most use to Christ. Uh, Later in Acts 13, the church in Antioch is going to be praying. And as they are praying, the Lord will speak to them, saying, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And what happens? The church says, Barnabas, go. And Barnabas goes. Here is the default attitude of a servant of Jesus Christ. Jesus, where can I be of most use? Jesus, where can I best serve the cause? Maybe it's something radical, like moving your family to another country. Because you can do the same job you're doing in Rocky Mount over there, but there you can do it around people who don't know much about Jesus. Right? Have you ever asked God that? Have you ever prayed? That's a dangerous prayer, isn't it? To pray that prayer. God, will you show me where my family should live, where we can be of most use to you? Or maybe it's something smaller, like just looking around the needs of this local church and asking, Jesus, where can I best meet a need? In just a few weeks, beginning of June each year, we hand out ministry surveys where we are looking for folks to step into roles of servanthood here at this church. Uh, Roles of ministry where you can bring passion and enthusiasm and creativity to serving this church in small ways. But these small roles of service can turn out to have really big eternal effects. Why do we always ask you as a church to pray over those surveys before you fill them out? It's because we want you praying these kinds of prayers. Jesus, where would you have me serve? How might I be of most help to the cause of Christ? I wonder if you have come to the place of complete surrender to Jesus. That is, have you come to the place where you are laying your entire life on the table, every part of who you are, and you're saying, Jesus, what you want me to do, I will do. What you want me to remove from my life, I will remove it. It's gone. Where you want me to serve in whatever ways I am willing. It's the, uh, the attitude of, here I am, Lord, send me. Right? 
This was Barnabas. Willing to go where he could be of most use. Where he could help. Second, see in our passage that Barnabas had a genuine love for outsiders. He had a genuine love for outsiders. We see a hint of this in verse 22. Uh, The pastors in Jerusalem got word of something unusual happening in Antioch. Uh, Antioch was a Greco-Roman city on the borders of modern Turkey and Syria. Back in Jerusalem, after the stoning of Stephen, persecution had caused many of the Jewish Christians to leave the city. And as these Jewish Christians began to scatter away from Jerusalem, they were taking the gospel with them and they were sharing it with other Jews. But they were sharing the gospel with devout Jews. They weren't sharing the gospel with Hellenists. Uh, Hellenists were looked upon with terrible disdain because Hellenists were in fact Jews who had adopted Greek lifestyle and Greek culture. Uh, they, They spoke Greek, they lived Greek. To the faithful Jews, the Hellenists had turned their backs on their heritage. They had turned their backs on their covenant with God. They were, they were not just pagans, they were worse than pagans. In Jerusalem, some of the first Christians were converted as Hellenists. And we heard from Acts even this morning that there was a complaint because their widows were, being cared for, were not being cared for by the church like other widows. Well, Now, what the apostles in Jerusalem are hearing is that way up in Antioch, The gospel has been shared with some of these Hellenists, these pagan Jews. And by the grace of God, they've believed. They've they've come to salvation. Now this is good news, but it, it creates an issue because now that we have these believers in Antioch, somebody has to go care for them. Somebody has to go disciple them. Somebody has to go make sure they get rooted in the faith. And the pastors in Jerusalem are looking around thinking, who are we going to send? Who's going to be willing to work with Hellenists? I know. We'll send Barnabas. Barnabas isn't too proud. Barnabas isn't too prejudiced. He'll be willing to work with the Hellenists. And it appears that Barnabas was seen as a man who looked beyond the cultural stereotypes, he looked beyond the prejudices of his day, and he truly loved people. He loved people that others found it hard to love. And part of it was because of his humility. He didn't see himself as too good for those Hellenists. Barnabas' willingness to befriend outsiders is a little thing, but it had a massive impact. Do you remember somebody else that was rejected by others, but that Barnabas welcomed? Do you remember the man called Saul of Tarsus? The apostle Paul. Paul had been a persecutor of the Christians. Paul was an enemy of the Christians. And suddenly he shows up at the door of the apostles claiming to be a Christian. And listen to what happens. This is Acts 9, verses 26 and 27. Uh, Acts 9 verse 26, and when Paul had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples and they were all afraid of him for they did not believe that he was a disciple. Verse 27, but Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles 
and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So when others drew back, Barnabas imitated Jesus and went towards those who were outsiders. How about us? What is our instinct towards people who are different from us? Do we move towards them? Or do we draw back? When we have guests visit with us in this church, do you make it a point to get to them? To to speak to them before they leave? To let them know how glad you are that they were here to worship with us? Or do you let the fact that you just don't know them become a hindrance that keeps you from beginning fellowship with them? How easy it is for us to avoid great opportunities for ministry because we draw back from outsiders. We should pray that God would give us the heart of Christ, that we would draw near to people who are different from us, who are unknown to us. Third, third, Barnabas cared more about the mission than his own name. He cared more about the mission than his own name. I get convicted by Barnabas' example here. I shared some weeks ago when we were in Exodus and we were talking about Moses' father-in-law Jethro and that passage. I shared about how bad I am at delegating. uh, How I struggle to turn responsibilities over to others and learning to step back and watch others run with the ball. Barnabas did not seem to struggle with that. Look at what Barnabas does in verses 25 and 26, right? In verse 24, we learn that Barnabas' exhortations, his preaching, his teaching, these things were leading more and more people to Jesus in Antioch. A great many people were coming to the Lord. So what does Barnabas do? Does he start his own church with him as the head? Does Barnabas become the czar of the church in Antioch? Does Barnabas establish himself as the head pastor and the head teacher? And Does he become the, the head honcho at this church? No, he does something you wouldn't expect. He leaves Antioch. He's preaching, he's teaching, people are being saved. The church is growing and Barnabas leaves. What's that? Where are you going, Barnabas? God is blessing. What are you doing? We're told what he was doing. He went to Antioch. I'm sorry, he left Antioch and went to Tarsus to find Paul. Because Barnabas began to see that he needed help and he knew what was becoming clear to the others, namely that Paul was a choice servant of God. That Paul had extraordinary gifts of preaching and teaching. And so instead of setting himself up as the head of the church in Antioch, He goes and finds Paul and says, Paul, I want you to take over and I'll be your helper. One writer says, with this strategic investment in Saul's life and career, Barnabas secured forever his secondary status in church history. Rather than caring about his own name, rather than being worried about his own reputation, Barnabas gladly does what he believes is for the best for the souls of the people in Antioch. His concern is that Jesus would be better known, that Jesus would be better loved, that Jesus would be better honored in this world. And so even though he's the older man, 
Even though he's been a Christian for a longer time, he submits to work alongside the younger Paul and to serve Paul in serving these people. Number four. Number four. Barnabas cared more about the mission than his own prosperity. He cared more about the mission than his own prosperity. So when we first meet Barnabas, way back in Acts 4, do you remember what he's doing? The first time we meet Barnabas, he is selling a field that he owns. And he is bringing the money to the leaders of the church to be used in ministry. In 1 Corinthians 9, Paul tells us that it wasn't just he, but it was also Barnabas who chose not to take money from the people he served. That Barnabas worked with his own hands to provide for himself. We're told that Barnabas had every right to ask those he was serving to provide for his needs. But he was working for the salvation of souls. And missionaries asking those they are seeking to reach with the gospel for money sent all the wrong signals. Barnabas cared more about the mission than his own prosperity. Here in Acts 11, we find that Barnabas and Saul are entrusted with a monetary gift. So look at verses 29 and 30. Verses 29 and 30. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over the world that took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. So this tells us that these men trusted Barnabas with money. Why? Well, because it was obvious to all that money was not his God. Barnabas was more in love with Jesus and the mission of building the church of Christ than he was with material things. And so he could be trusted with this offering. Mount Hermon, what is your relationship with money this morning? What is your relationship with stuff? What has your heart this morning? Is it your material prosperity in this world? Or is it the glory of Jesus Christ? Money is not evil. The inordinate love of money is evil, but money is not evil. Uh, The Puritan Samuel Willard said, Riches are consistent with godliness, and the more a man has, the more advantage he has to do good with it, if God gives him a heart to do it. For the Christian, money and material possessions are simply tools to be well employed for the sake of the mission. I have a house. How can I use it for the mission? I have a car. How can I use it to serve souls? Uh, William Perkins, the Puritan, said this. He said, we must so use and possess the goods we have that the possession of them may tend to God's glory. And the salvation of souls. Our riches must be employed to necessary uses. These are first, the maintenance of our own good estate and condition. Secondly, the good of others, especially those of our own family or kindred. Thirdly, the relief of the poor. Fourth, the maintenance of the church of God and true religion. And fifth, the maintenance of the commonwealth. 
So in other words, we should use money and material possessions to care for our needs, to care for the needs of our families. And we should also use our money and material possessions to pay taxes, to serve our local communities, to care for the poor, to sustain a gospel ministry at our local church, and to support the spread of the gospel around the world. In other words, how do we view money and material things? As tools. Tools to serve the mission. Barnabas was like that. He could be trusted with money because money was not his God. Number five. Number five. Barnabas rejoiced in the grace of God in others. He rejoiced in the grace of God in others. This mark is so important because it helps us understand what was going on in Barnabas' heart. He loved the grace of God. And he loved seeing the grace of God change others' lives. Acts 11, verse 23. Do you see it? Acts 11, verse 23. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad. What makes you happy? What gets you excited? Do you love to see the grace of God in others? Matthew Henry says, where the grace of God is, it will be seen as the tree is known by its fruits and where it is seen, it ought to be owned. In other words, when we see the grace of God at work in someone, we should name that. (laughs) We should say, I see that. We should bless God for that. Matthew Henry says, what we see, which is good in any, we must call God's grace in them and give that grace the glory of it. We ought ourselves to take the comfort of it and make it the matter of our rejoicing. He says we must be glad to see the grace of God in others. Do you love seeing a transformed life? Do you love seeing a converted soul? Do you love seeing before your eyes people being changed by the grace of God? Even this morning, being in this room and listening to some of you who've been through an incredible last few years, singing to my ears, great is his faithfulness. That's the grace of God in you. And you know what? It makes me glad. (laughs) And I hope it makes you glad. I hope we, like Barnabas, rejoice to see the grace of God in others. The true Christian loves his Savior above all else. But right now, our Savior is in heaven, and we are on earth. Yes, we have him in his spirit. We have him through his word. But right now, we're away from our Lord. We are on mission for him, and we are waiting for the day when he will personally return to take us to himself. When we love someone who is taken away from us, don't we love to see tokens of their work? For some reason, the, the example that comes to my mind is an artist who is far away in another land. But the wife of that artist, whenever she misses her husband, will go to the art gallery and look at some of her husband's work. And as she sees his work, she misses him even more. <laughs> But she rejoices and she loves him more and she finds her her happiness in him increasing. She's so ready for him to return. 
Well, in the same way, when we see the grace of God in others, we are seeing the work of our beloved. We are seeing the work of Jesus, the one we love in this person. And seeing the work of Christ in others should make us love him more. It should make us long to be more with him. Seeing the grace of God in others should motivate us to work harder for the mission, to speed forward the day when the kingdom will be built and Christ will return and take us to himself. Barnabas loved his God, he loved his Savior, and therefore he loved seeing God's grace on display. May we be like that. Oh, if God would be pleased to give us a fresh sense of his grace at work among us in this place. So I'm going to close this way. Where do Barnabases come from? Where do men like this come from? The Bible does something really unique here, something it doesn't do very often with Barnabas. In verse 24, the Bible calls Barnabas a good man. A good man. When the scripture speaks of humanity, it says, Romans 3, there are none good. (laughs) No, not one. But that's talking about humanity in its natural state. Humanity in its unbelieving state. But when we become Christians, Christians really are accounted good in Christ. We're made righteous through Christ. And the Spirit begins working in us, and the Spirit really does begin making us good. And Barnabas is set before us as a good man, a man to imitate. So where do people like Barnabas, sons of encouragement, people on mission for God, where do they come from? Look at verse 24 again. Verse 24. It doesn't just say that he was a good man. It also says he was full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And I could take time to point us to Ephesians and Colossians and show you the connection between being full of the Word of God and full of the Spirit of God. But what it all boils down to is this. Barnabas had a heart full of the truths of God, the promises of God, and he was living by faith in those promises. He was a man of faith living by faith in the truth that Jesus loved him and had purchased his soul and had taken away his sins. Barnabas had been gripped by the truths of God and he was now living in those truths. He wasn't just believing facts about Jesus. He was believing in the Jesus of those facts. He was trusting the Jesus of those facts. He was loving this Jesus. The life of faith is a life in which Christ has become everything to someone. And for Barnabas, Christ was his all. Why was he willing to go wherever he could be of most use? Because Christ was his all. Why did he have a genuine, humble love for outsiders? Because Christ was his all. Why did Barnabas care more about the mission than his own name? Because Christ was his all. Why did Barnabas care more about the mission than his own prosperity? Because Christ was his all. And why did he rejoice when he saw the grace of God in others? Because Christ was his all. Dear friend, What is Christ to you this morning? Is he your all? 
Are you living by faith in all that he is for you? Are you willing to resolve with me to joyfully play second fiddle or third fiddle or 444th fiddle if that's what God desires? If we're playing something that honors the name of Jesus? Let the spotlight be on Christ. And may we find our joy in seeing and savoring and adoring and serving him. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.